0: Podcast.
1: Electrical podcast. Hello there. Welcome along again to Episode 9. The ninth episode. Nine times we've done this. <laughs> nine times. Where's that from? It's a film. Nine times. Where we got yeah, I I know what it is. Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Ferris Bueller's Day Off. It's the headmaster when he's calling Ferris's mum about Ferris's absence from Scotland. He's been absent nine times. Oh, the headmaster in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. His name was Ed. Ed Rooney is the name of the headmaster. Thanks, Grace. (laughs) He was amazing. Who who can remember who played uh, Ed Rooney, the headmaster in Ferris Bueller's Day Off? I know for a fact it was Jeffrey Jones and he was, if you ever want to see a masterclass in scene stealing, he completely makes a film. And I know, I wasn't going to talk about Ferris Bueller's Day Off, but very well, here we go. I know Ferris Bueller's Day Off better than maybe, well, it's the film I know best because when I was about 12 or so, me and my brother and my cousin, Ben... We watched it a frankly ridiculous amount of times. I say I'd, I've probably seen Ferris Bueller's Day Off about 150 times. Because that would mean, if 150 times, that would mean watching it less than every other day for a year. And we watched it for about two years. So, yeah, probably about 150 times. It's the film I've seen more than any other in my life by a long way. And there are great bits. Cameron Fry and his hypochondria. Uh, the Ferrari. When mm. the, the lads from the garage take the Ferrari out. And the bit in the museum where Cameron stares at a painting down to the individual fibres. Um, oh, and Twist and Shout, of course. And any bit with Jeffrey Jones as a headmaster. Uh, it's a John Hughes film, isn't it? Of course, it, of course it's good. But then I saw... Ferris Bueller's day off as an adult about uh, three or four years ago, shocked because Ferris Bueller was a hero to the 12-year-old me but to the 30-year-old me I just thought, oh you little bastard, you know through the learned cynical eyes of a 30-year-old he's just a brat, There's there's that bit in the film where he's complaining about getting a computer for his birthday, his sister got a car And he got a computer, and he says, how's that for being born under a bad sign? And I I was thinking, I'd love that computer. He's got a modem. It's the 80s. He's got everything. He's got a modem. If you can picture his room, Ferris Bueller's day off, he's got everything he could ever want. Didn't have to pay for it. His parents, who in the film come over as lovely people, they paid for it all, and the big house he lives in. But he's not happy. He's a brat. Ferris Bueller is a cocky little brat. But uh, he was a god to the child me. And it's it's interesting that he's so revered, Ferris, because in Britain we could never take a privileged middle-class teenager to our hearts. We did in Ferris Bueller. But the middle classes traditionally can never and will never be cool. Aside from me, aside from me, obviously, I'm the exception. But if his girlfriend's called Simone in the film. Let's not forget that. He's from an affluent uh, Chicago suburb. His girlfriend's called Simone. He loves himself, clearly. Why did we hold Ferris in such high regard? He's got a good choice of best friend, because Cameron's amazing, isn't he? But he sort of uses Cameron all the time. What's to like about Ferris? But we did like him. And all the the kids at his school love him. Do you remember Grace, the secretary, going, "Uh, Ed, the sportos, the motorheads, geeks, sluts, bloods, waistoids, dweebies, dickheads. They all adore him. They think he's a righteous dude. (laughs) if I remember it. I've told you. I've seen it so many times. I don't know. There's not a line I don't know. Oh, Grace, the secretary. Her and Ed Rooney, they're the best thing about that whole flick, aren't they? Um, But anyway, if it weren't uh, an American teenager called Ferris, if it were a middle-class British kid called Ollie, and he, like, totally didn't get a car for his birthday, just a top-of-the-range iMac, and his girlfriend's called Simone... And he steals his best friend's dad's Ferrari, takes it to London for a seriously cool day out. We'd all be watching it going, die! I hope you die on your adventure! I hope you crash! I hope the police get you! And you have the guts kicked out of you in a juvenile remand centre! But anyway, in the film, a big petition is started. In, In the actual Ferris Bueller film, a big petition is started because word gets around, Chinese whispers, that Ferris is dying when actually he's just taken a day off school. And nowadays, that would be a Facebook campaign. It would have, there would be a Save Ferris group, would have about three million members. So he's not actually that good, is he, Ferris? Because he was doing all this stuff in the 80s like an idiot. Facebook didn't even exist. We haven't really covered Facebook uh, in these podcasts By the way, if you think this is a bit of an unsteady start to the episode, no, it isn't. It's freewheeling. That's what it is. bit of Ferris Bueller, and then that goes into Facebook. It's freewheeling. It's like what Ross Noble or someone would do. Anyway, Facebook. I I find it amazing. I'm not going to make fun of Facebook, even though someone my age, 33, using Facebook is absurd. The idea that people in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s avidly using something that is the domain of a teenager is... Well, it's, at best it's amusing, but at worst it's worrying. It's for teenagers to learn to communicate and flirt and look at pictures of people they fancy at college. And it's, this is the same reason that 30-something 30 pe- 30 people use it. And that can't be right. You might argue, oh, well, why put this down to age? Isn't it wonderful that teenagers and people in their 50s can find a common platform which both groups can utilise and benefit from? No! No! It isn't good, it's, it's strange. Now, I think Facebook does bring out the child, which is no surprise. People seem to be uh, broken down into their teenage self a bit on Facebook. Especially in the status updates. You know, you write down what you're up to. So, Stanley McHale, just off to the airport. You know, something like that. But the thing, like, that's an example, just off to the airport. The thing with these status updates is they're generally lies or boasts. They're boasts. And they're just there for people to provide unsubtle pointers as to their aceness so like off to the airport I mean, I'd never put that hopefully but that's a typical example it's showing off isn't it so status updates will be Hannah Matthews can't believe she passed her driving test first time just put I've passed my driving test first time don't dress it up with false modesty or John Langdon is off to buy a new guitar. Yeah, we get it, John. You play the guitar. Just making sure all the girls know, aren't you? Okay, you've made your point. Move on. I I like the ones that dress up a boast in a thin veil of annoyance. (laughs) Sam Highland is waiting for the departure board to show the time of his delayed flight to Argentina. Bloody air, France. (laughs) And that has nothing to do with the departure board. Nothing. And it's got nothing to do with Air France. That just means I'm off to Argentina, me. That's all that is. Then there's um, there's ones on Facebook, Facebook status updates, that go for sympathy as well. Um, Adam Brook doesn't think he can face tomorrow. I'll grow a pair, Adam. But people encourage it. They leave messages for Adam. They go, "Oh, what's the matter, hon? You'll be okay. Kiss, kiss, kiss. What's happening tomorrow? You'll be all right. It's just fishing for empathy. Don't entertain it." And people go, "Um, Darlene Tyler." Darlene Tyler can't believe she fell for the lies of a bastard. And there'll be 38 comments. Don't worry, hun. Give me a call. Just tell us what happened and we'll advise. We're supposed to be friends on Facebook. You don't get me. You don't never get me going, oh, what went on? What to do? Couldn't it give a shape, man? Actually, the worst Facebook status posts, let's call them that, Facebook status posts, FSBs, FSBs, the worst ones are from uh, comedians. Comedians are pathetic. Mentally unhinged, paranoid, always digging around for acceptance or approval. There was one FSB once, and this is true. I can't back it up, though. I can't remember who wrote it. I swear, if I could remember who did this, I'd name and shame, but I can't. Anyway, he wrote, it was a hymn, and he wrote, so XXX, the name, would just like to thank the people of Bournemouth for the standing ovation he got last night. I mean... That's thinly veiled bosun, there's that. You might as well just write, my mummy never gave me any love and now I'm on Facebook. And it was pointed out to me the importance of the relationship status thing on Facebook as well. You know, you can put single or going out with and a link to a a person's name, it was pointed out to me that this is probably now the only really official way of deciding that you're going out with someone, which is actually a good thing because it's too vague, that, that zone between getting together with someone or meeting someone a few times and deciding you're now actually a couple. At least Facebook, in a rather crap way, has provided some certainty to it because generally what happens in the modern world is that you meet someone like Eddie Cochran did, but not like Eddie Cochran, because you don't find a person you love, you just find a person, and then you sleep with them, and then if you sleep with them again, say within a week, you're sort of going out. And this is very ungallant, I think, just sliding, dissolving into a relationship. So how did you guys meet? Oh, we just uh, sort of met at a party, and... um... And then we're just sort of uh, going out. I mean, I'm the king of single, but I think there should be a defining moment that creates a relationship, preferably with an element of risk. Remember at school when you fancied someone and you wanted to go out with them, you had to ask them out. Like, Like if you want to marry someone now, you've got to ask them. At school, it was the same. And this created an element of suspense and nerve because there was a fear of rejection and humiliation. So you'd often get a friend, a sort of flunky to go with a note that you've prepared and give it to the girl in question or a representative of the, the girl in question often. It was like an early version of the UN. It was politics. It was all diplomats fishing for votes. It was like FIFA. It was like the World Cup bid. Anyway, the note. Do you remember the note? I'm the new Peter K, aren't I? Do you remember the note at school? Um, the, the purpose of the note was, do you want to go out with me? But it had answer boxes to tick. Uh, do you want to go out with me? And then a box for yes, box for no, uh, perhaps a box for maybe, an abstaining box. It was like filling in your tax return and your representative would come back to you with the completed document in a sealed ballot box. (laughs) He'd come back and you'd look at the note on which your beloved had made their mark in the no box, obviously, in my case, and you'd file that away and call a meeting to see how your popularity rating might be improved within your constituency. (laughs) And a think tank a think tank—would be created with the purpose of addressing the key issues as to why Catherine Patrick was indeed holding out over the issue of your forthcoming kiss by the science block. <laughs> oh, cocknobs! Here she is. why do you have to turn up we were just in the middle of a whimsical bit there that everybody could relate to even fans of michael mcintyre were enjoying that bit about school days and and now look a psychopathic member of the undead is here to cheer our merry hearts i'm not a
2: psychopath i only meddle when something needs meddling with i kill you
1: i was thinking about this though diana you're a murderer aren't you you killed your husband, Albert.
2: And the little tart he was going with.
1: A double murderer. I don't think you should be allowed on the podcast. The vast majority of the two people involved in this have never killed anybody. But
2: that was in my living years. i paid my payments for that.
1: No, you didn't. You just died. You got away with it, scot-free probably, and then died. How old were you when you died?
2: 64.
1: Right. And then you've just hung around here, which is sort of punishment, but not actual justice.
2: Oh, you think you know all about it? When I died, I went to purgatory for 3,000 years.
1: But you were alive in the 60s.
2: Time stands still in purgatory. You can be there for millennia, not a second passes in the land of the living.
1: Mm, And what was purgatory like then? Were you jabbed with red-hot pokers morning, noon and night?
2: Oh, Remember, those interpretations of hell or purgatory were invented by the living. They've never been there, have they? No, it's your own personal hell. So for me, when I was alive, I used to catch the 26 bus to Gale Trust and go and see my sister. But there were only two buses a day going out the village and two a day coming back in. So if you missed the morning one, you were right in it. So my purgatory was, for three thousand years, just running down a hill with a bus at the bottom. And no matter how quickly I ran or how many tens of thousands of times I did it, the bus would always just be pulling away as I approached. and the bus I was told was my route out of purgatory so for 3,000 years I was running for a bus I could never catch
1: oh that's such a petty purgatory that's useless
2: how useless purgatory is it you try running down a hill millions of times for 3,000 years you see how you like it what would your personal hell be oh
1: Oh, it'd be something like constantly being second in a queue. You know, there'd, there'd be a queue for a cashier person. And the cashier person, that would be the person that stamped your exit visa out of purgatory. But you were constantly second because the person in front of you is utterly incompetent. You know, like in a bank, when you've got something really simple to do, like paying a cheque. But the person in front of you has got all sorts of files and forms out, asking questions, and you need a wee... That would probably, that would probably be it. And you
2: my purgatory, Petty.
1: Mine's better. No, I tell you what my purgatory would be. You know uh, that show, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Yes. Well, it would be being on that, but constantly in the first round of questions. The, the questions for 100 quid that just give you some confidence, the first question. Those are the only questions you face. This would be purgatory for your entire time you're there. But the the other thing is, because they're multiple choice, you know who wants to be a millionaire? You get four choices. You can't just butt in. You have to listen to all the four options. So this would be, for 3,000 years, right, I'd just be asked questions. So it would go, right, here's your first question. A watched pot never, and you go, boils. And they go, no. Listen to all the answers first. You have to listen to them all. A watched pot never, A, boils, B, boils. And the correct answer would always be answer A. That, that would be the other thing about this purgatory. You, you have to listen to all four answers, but the correct one is always the first one. So they go, right, and here's your next question. The lion is the king of the... And you go, jungle. And you go, no, they go, no, wait. Wait for all the answers. The lion is the king of the... Is it A, jungle? B, Rhode Island? C,... Swingers. It's jungle! It's jungle! Imagine that would be. And you never get anywhere. You never win anything. It's just questions for the rest of time. Anyway, Diana. Yes.
2: Have you got an email for me? Yes.
1: Remarkably, there is someone who has requested a reading. His name is Phil Robbins, and he lives in Acton in London. And he has written Dear Diana, say hello to Phil, Diana.
2: Hello, Phil. <laughs>
1: Dear Diana, it's my driving test next week and I'm a bit nervous because it's taken five months of lessons so far and I've already failed twice.
2: Loser!
1: Stop it! He's not a loser. I failed my driving test twice because I was too good at driving. You know, if you drive normally and casually, they fail you. Anyway, Phil says, already failed twice. It's pretty vital I pass this time as I start a new job in January and as it's a sales job, I'll only be allowed out of the office to see clients if I can drive. Here's hoping for good news, Phil. So, Diana, will Phil pass his test? Yes. Hooray! Well, that was easy. Well done, Phil.
2: He'll pass with flying colours.
1: Good man. And good luck in the new job too.
2: It's on the drive home from the test centre that it happens. What happens? The slip. The slip of the foot, dear, just approaching a pedestrian crossing in Twickenham, chatting to his mum in the passenger seat, all excited, his first few minutes as a legal driver, and how there's someone just setting off on the crossing, and so Phil, noticing at the last minute, goes to hit the brake, but his shoe is wet from a puddle outside the test centre, and it slips off to the right of the brake, and onto the accelerator, and the car jumps forward, taking a 70-year-old man up onto the bonnet, tipping him over the roof as his mum screams and Phil panics, his foot lodged at an angle, caught at the side of the throttle as the car mounts the pavement and heads straight through the window of a charity shop, taking out another couple of old dears.
1: Phil, it doesn't happen. She did this last week. You pass your test, you drive home, that's that. No, I kill you.
2: And the glass stops falling from the broken window. And the car sits stalled in the middle of the shop. The silence is broken by the screaming. And Phil sits there, his hands gripping the wheel in frozen shop. As his mum starts to have one of our attacks and scrambles for our pills before the sirens can be heard in the background. And the next thing Phil remembers, as he languishes in his cell, is being walked to the back of a police van, while members of the public stand around and shout a and just out the corner of his eye, a body bag is zipped up and transported to an ambulance.
1: It's all nonsense. Shut up, Diana.
2: Six years, he gets. The relatives wanted more, but six years it is. No new job for him.
1: Shut up. Be gone. Be gone, foul spirit.
2: I can hear you. I can see you. I kill you.
1: Listen, um, good luck with the test. Don't listen to any of that and just concentrate. I'm sure everything everything will be dandy. Probably g- best get your mum to drive home, though. If you have uh, an important, life-changing event that you've got coming up and you want to know how it's going to go from the all-seeing Diana, then write in, normal address, electricalpodcast at gmail.com. Don't worry about The people in the charity shop, Phil, they were old and they would have died anyway. (coughs) I went to post a letter last week. Um, This really is a gripping podcast, isn't it? It's quite the thrill ride. I think this is probably what is meant when people refer to the spirit of rock and roll. I went to post a letter. I didn't have a stamp, so went into the post office, queued up. I was second in line obviously the person in front of me took forever and I asked the woman for a stamp and she said first or second class and I said who the devil do you think you're talking to no I said first class please and she said that'll be 41p now for one thing a lot has been made recently by people whose priorities are way out of kilter about the price of stamps going up they go 41p They say 41p now. And this letter was going to Manchester, 250 miles away. And not only is 41p an amazing deal, I think, it's the same price for anywhere in the UK. So it could be going to the north of Scotland up to. Inverness, Dundee, and the logistics of doing this from the south uh, I want to send this letter to Inverness, please. I want you to take it with your hands, and then have another person collect it, put it in their van, drive it to a sorting office, put it on a train to East Midlands Airport, if you please, put it onto a plane, fly it to Edinburgh, and then sort it out, and then put it on another plane, then put it in a lorry, And then take it to a local sorting office. Then, if you would, put it in a van. And then could you have someone drive it to the exact address I've put here and personally put it through this person's door? And I'd like that done by tomorrow morning. Certainly, sir. That'll be 41p. How much? I don't want it taken on a gold train and a gold plane and driven around in a gleaming chariot and delivered by Beyonce. I simply want it handled by 30 or so perfectly normal people and taken on ordinary planes and trains and driven through the snow in a standard van. How dare you think to charge me 41 pence? It's an outrage. You know, the post office is always going on about how it loses money. They say that they lose money on every delivery. Yeah, do you know why? It's ridiculously cheap. If the postal service were invented tomorrow and someone wanted to send a letter to Inverness or the Outer Hebrides and the post office clerk said, right, well, what we're gonna do is we're gonna have to put that on a train and then then on a plane and then a lorry, then another plane. Um, and then we're going to have to have someone drive it personally to the door. You'd be thinking, oh, God, look out. This is going to cost, isn't it? Brace yourself. And then they go, um, so call it a quid? A pound? How does that sound? You'd be euphoric. You got a quid? Have two. Have two. But people moan about it being 41p. 41p just send a birthday card these days. They've spent two quid on the cards. It's like going on holiday, spending £10 on a pair of swimming trunks and then moaning that your flight to Bahamas was £3.50. Well, it it isn't like that, is it? But if the postal service didn't exist and if there wasn't a postal service and you had to pay someone to personally drive, train and fly a letter up to Inverness and you said uh, to a bloke on the street, you said, right, here, I've got a little proposition for you. I want you to take this letter. I've got a little proposition for you. It's David Bowie who wants to post something. I've got a little proposition for you. I want you to take this letter, drive it to the train station. I want you to get a train to the airport. I want you to fly to Scotland with this. And then I want you to get on another train and then a plane out to the outer Hebrides. And I'd like you to give this to my mate Gareth by tomorrow morning, if you don't mind. And I'll give you a pound. How does that sound? They'd screw up the letter before your eyes and jump on it and kick it into the drains. Just at the sheer insult of it all. A pound. Maybe £400. I mean, that wouldn't even cover expenses, probably, would it? So, £700. 41p for a first-class stamp? Are you mad? 41p? I've got, they've got second-class mail in the UK, as we know, but some people might not know. You, you can have first-class or second-class. Second-class is cheaper it's thirty two p instead of forty one p a saving there of nine pence, but it takes longer sort of three or four or five days. see I've never really understood second class mail. I mean for one thing, I don't understand people sending individual letters second class it's miserly isn't it if you're a huge business sending out thousands of pieces of mail, then yes, obviously that that's a significant saving, or if you're mailing something a bill or a parking ticket that you really don't want to speed through the system then yeah okay second class post but when i was in the post office there's people putting their tightwad skinflint second-class stamps onto handwritten envelopes addressed to their friends their friends their valued friends and in doing so i think insulting their friends second-class friends not worth an extra few pence friends how is someone supposed to feel when receiving that letter. Inferior, I think. You receive a second-class piece of mail from somebody that you know personally. You feel inferior, at the bottom of the pile. Cheap. Insignificant. Why not send the letter first-class, but then, next to the stamp, draw a little derisory, small, sad face with an arrow with hue? written against, or a piece of excrement, draw a piece of excrement, or a tiny animal being kicked by an enormous boot, just so they get the mail on time, but are still made to feel immaterial and low grade. For another thing... Surely second-class mail is harder and more inconvenient to deal with. Oh, (coughs) to deal with. Did you hear the way I said that? To deal with. It was like I was a robot gone mental. No, surely because the postal service have a system developed whereby they can take a letter from the south of England to the north of Scotland for delivery the next morning. It's a really sleek system. But it all has to be divided into two now. First-class mail, proper mail, the mail that utilises the system, and then second-class mail that hangs around clogging the system up. Because it has to be separated to go slower, As a bloke at the sorting office. Right, Okay, we've got these letters for Inverness, and they need to be there tomorrow. Not a problem, Sam, just loading the train up now. Good, good, but then there's this lot, also for Inverness, but they need to get there in about four days' time. Could you stick them in a room or something? Oh, well, um... That's tricky, to be honest. Uh, we're a bit pushed for space. I tell you what would be easier is if I just stuck them on the train with the others and got them moving. No, no, can't do that. The people that sent these letters considered 41p to be too much of an outlay to send a letter 500 miles. So they have agreed that for a saving of nine pence, they will have their letter delivered a few days later. Right, right. Well, maybe I could stick them out in the staff room or something. The thing is, the actual travel time for the letters are going to be The same, isn't it? Only we have to keep these letters back at our own inconvenience and expense. Yes, that's the way second class mail works. Despite it making no sense, we must hold their letters back to the Inverness orphanage asking for more free labour for their freezing homes. We must hold these misers' letters back until such time as they have had their nine pence worth of pointless delay. This is the thing it's easier to do something quickly. If someone said, You've got to be in Glasgow not not a letter but you if you had to be in glasgow you've got to be in glasgow in six hours time you'd think uh, right okay well what i'll do i'll get to euston station allow myself an hour for that train takes four and, a half, four and a half hours that gives me half an hour yeah six hours no problem but if someone said you've got to be in glasgow in 60 hours off you go then you've got problems haven't you you'd have to you'd go to euston you still do that and then get on a train and go about 20 miles up the track to watford or somewhere, Book into a hotel, get up the next morning, go to rugby or somewhere, stay another night, go to a shop, you know, kill time, buy some fishing gear, go fishing, pack up, get on another train, go up to Carlisle, go and hang around in a museum, then get another train. It would be hugely more expensive. So, if you're sending Christmas cards this year, whatever your budget, don't celebrate the season of goodwill by making a 9p saving on all of your friends. Especially not if you're a grandparent and you're sending your grandkids a £20 book voucher. A 2,000p book voucher. Don't save 9p on the miracle that is the postal service. Because not only will your beloved grandkids get their book voucher about mid-January, it's also mental. to about half past five in the morning it's time to put on that wire mesh mask step into some white overalls strap on some heavy duty protective gloves and open up the beehive that is the london dating scene to see if there's any honey inside with our resident expert and winner of the evening standards optimist of the year 2010 award alan merrick good evening alan
0: oh good evening stanley What was that about Optimist of the Year?
1: Oh, I was just joking, you know. If there were a prize for being an optimist, then you'd win it because you always seem to bounce back.
0: Yes, but I don't think that's anything to joke about.
1: I wasn't being nasty. Maybe that came across the wrong way. I wasn't being nasty. I just think everyone is amazed that you... Come back for more each week.
0: Come back for more what? Humiliation?
1: You think people think I'm a failure? Oh! Whoa, whoa, whoa! No, wait! I think we've got off uh, slightly on the wrong foot. What I meant to say is that every week you come on here with stories that would knock the stuffing out of a lot of people, me included, and yet there you are, the following week, ready to climb back into the ring. And I think people have got nothing but admiration for you. Well,
0: I don't climb back into the ring as a sort of game, though. I do it out of necessity. I don't enjoy these weekly batterings. I I hope you don't think I take any pleasure in what seems to happen to me every week.
1: No, of course we don't think you take pleasure in this. This is what I mean when I say people have nothing but admiration for you. You're incredibly resilient.
0: be that as it may. I don't want to be seen by people as someone who just comes on here with a recurring story as a sort of trusty stooge. I want nothing more than to be in a situation that means if I ever went on another date, her indoors would beat me round the head with a cricket bat. That's my dream. I don't want you to forget that this is my dream. I'm not just some sort of serial dater or something. If I had my way, I'd have only have been on one date in my life. I.e. the first
1: one. I don't think people see you as a stooge at all. And so, what's the matter this week anyway? You're not normally this down. Oh, my apologies. I've had a
0: bit of a time of it this week. Mr. Rookfeather cut my wages. Why? No reason, except he said times were hard and we all have to accept a period of austerity and get back into your dark room. You disgust me. You know, the stuff bosses normally come out with.
1: Was it a big cut?
0: Oh, to me, yes, 20%. And I mean, I have my rent and my rates to pay. And going on these dates, I mean, just paying for the wines and the occasional damage sets me back. And that's without ever having to actually pay for a meal.
1: You can always be on the on the lookout for other work. I don't think any of us like the sound of this Mr Rookfeather anyway. You should say to him as you go, listen, Rookfeather. Master,
0: makes me call him
1: master. Oh, it's not 1856. You're not a chimney sweep. What sort of maniac is he?
0: Oh, I don't know. And, you know, I can still afford my rent, but then you fear the bills coming in, don't you? And Christmas being just around the corner, I like to make donations to several charities at Christmas, you know, seeing as I don't have family to buy for. But I fear I might have to cut Back a bit on that as no, well.
1: Only spend money on yourself this year, Alan. You deserve to treat yourself, and I know you don't have any direct family, but you've got, you've got Billy, and what about other friends online and stuff? I mean, you don't have to be lonely this Christmas. Are you on Facebook? and yes. Really, are you? What, just under Alan Merrick?
0: Alan Silas Merrick. Good. Silas is my middle
1: name. Right, hang on. I'm looking you up. Now, Alan, Silas, Merrick. Hang on. Because we could meet up over, over Christmas. Does it have a, a photo next to your name? Or... No, just a
0: picture of a candle. Same as I use on the dating sites. I think we talked about that a while back. Hang on.
1: There you are, sir. Right. I've sent a friend request. All right. And what do I do now? Well... You know, you get an email, don't you, saying that, well, in my case, Stanley has sent a friend request, and then you just click accept. Do you? I don't know. You've never, you've never had a friend on Facebook? No. Well, you, you do now, mate, and people listening to this, they'll find you and add you, I'm certain. Add me? Yeah, it's a, it's a social network site. Oh, I'm
0: afraid I'm a little behind the times.
1: Hey, Alan, listen, you've Come on, you've never been like this. Things will pick up, mate. Everything comes in waves. I mean, right, did you go on a date this week? Yes, of course. I go on a date
0: every Saturday, Stanley. You know that. That's why I'm here, isn't it? To talk about it. Well,
1: no, you're here to tell us what happened, good or bad. You're not... You know, it's you don't. It's not that you have to come on here every week and tell us a story of something going horribly wrong. Trust me, everybody listening to this wishes it were the last time we ever spoke about dates.
0: Right. So I should tell you about my date this
1: week, should I? Well, if you think that it would help, or if you want to, then yes. I mean, where was it? The Whitechapel Gallery dining room, just
0: down the road from me. It's a restaurant inside the Whitechapel Art
1: Gallery. Right. And we're all muddled up this week, aren't we? So who, more importantly, who was the date with? Her name is Digital. Digital. Yes,
0: she's a contemporary media artist. A Swiss girl from Zurich. Oh, Digital.
1: And where did you meet? Through through one of the dating sites? No,
0: she'd put various pieces of fruit around London. This is actually very clever. She'd put various pieces of fruit around London with meat question mark and her phone number written on the skin of the fruit in felt it and just left these objects on the pavement or in bins and places to see if anyone would call. I was walking past a fruit stall by white apple chew and I see this artichoke on the pavement with some writing on it and I pick it up and there's a message and a number so
1: curiosity got the better of me and I rang it on an artichoke oh an artichoke I see I get clever it is clever
0: don't mock her and so on the phone she said Have you heard of an artist called Walid Rad? And of course, I just lie and say, yes, of course, even though I haven't got the foggiest. So she says, what country is he from? And now, I'm a bit thrown here. I'm about to be exposed. So I say, "Um, an artist doesn't have any boundaries. And she says, see you Saturday
1: at seven. Oh, well played. A good artist doesn't have any boundaries. Hey, how's that for a bullshit bullseye? I know. So I
0: went down to the gallery about four, you know, to look at the exhibition so I could become a bit of an expert on the artist before. she arrived. Um, But there there was a smaller gallery off to the side where someone called Freddy White was celebrating the opening of his new exhibition of prints. So... I wandered in there. Everyone else seemed to move off out into the main hall again, and so I pretty much had the place to myself, which was wonderful because there was a table set up with red and white wine. Good, so help yourself. Well, it was all free, so silly not to. Especially when you're cutting back on the budget like I am. Absolutely.
1: How many did you have?
0: Oh, I don't know. I didn't want to take advantage. How many? Twelve. Stayed in there by myself until ten to seven when I staggered back around to the restaurant section and took a table to wait for digital.
1: Which is great, isn't it? Because no waiting at a table for hours like normal. Well, that's it. It was a revelation. So, seven o'clock comes around. Was she on time? To the second. Oh, well, look, her name's Digital, and she's from Switzerland. She's going to be to the second, isn't she? I suppose. So she walks in, and as normal, Alan take it from here. Well, there were several people coming and going, but even though I didn't
0: know what she looked like, because her profile picture on the dating site was simply a lilac with a swastika drawn on it, she was very easy to spot. I I can always spot the artistic types. She wore a gentleman's pinstripe trousers, a yellow bikini top, and a hat made out of a a bathroom floor tile she looked absolutely divine and so you stand up and I do my little wave yes and I say digital it's me it's Alan and she just stared over at me and then reached into her little handbag and took out a sophisticated looking camera. I think it was a Hasselblad. And she calmly focuses it, takes a photograph of me standing there, and then. Puts the camera on the floor and stamps it to pieces, and then she just ran out of the door, leaving the shattered remains of the camera in her wake.
1: No, no. Ne- look, never mind.
0: Never mind. It's all right for you, never mind.
1: Wait. I mean, I haven't got a girlfriend. We're in the same boat. I'm with you. Everyone's with you. We're not in the same boat.
0: Unless your boat is made out of sleepless nights. A boss who treats you like a slave. A cold flat. A weekly humiliation all over the capital. Unless your boat is called HMS Nothing. And it's just home for some shopping trip is in the black mud at the bottom of the Thames. There's
1: always hope. I mean, what's your favourite quote? A faint heart never won a fair lady.
0: Oh, I've been... Hitting myself All the years I've been doing this And now To top it all I've been doing it for the sick amusement Of people listening to a podcast
1: Everyone that listens to this section Only wants you to succeed each week No one wants you to fail
0: Well I think this is where we call it a day. If I'm going to keep putting myself through this, I'd sooner do it in private.
1: But it's nearly Christmas. Look, let's speak again before Christmas. Good luck to you, Stanley. And goodbye. Well, why not join us next week for the final podcast of the series? When maybe we'll be joined by Alan Merrick one of the nicest people in the world as he continues to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous misfortune or maybe not. Either way it's a cold night in Whitechapel and so let our hopes and prayers be with him tonight. <laughs>
2: podcast was written, performed, and produced by Stanley McHale. It features Stanley McHale and Anna Neal.